some of the bigger tech companies I would talk to, they want to really put you in that bucket. Like, do you do research or do you do design? I'm like, wait, but I do both. So having to actually parse that and find an organization that wanted all of me, you know, they didn't want me to just stop at, I write research decks. are so excited to welcome Nicole Kahn, who has worked at the International Design Consultancy at IDEO, WeWork, and now Carta. Her creative superpowers are design research and storytelling, and I've always admired her ability to lead others in creative practice. We're so happy to have you here, Nicole. Thanks. I'm thrilled to be here. We're going to jump right into it. Um, so this question is about the start of your, of your career. So wanting to know, how did you get your start in technology design? And what was your, oh, I'm a designer moment or, oh, I should be in tech moment? If you had a moment. Um, I, so I was a chemical engineering major undergrad. I went to Brown um, and my friends would tease me because every year, every quarter or sorry, semester, every semester I take four classes. Three of them were for my major and one was for fun. And my engineering friends were like, what, what are you taking? I'm like, oh, I'm taking art of the short essay and printmaking is the best class ever. And they're like, Nicole, you say that about every class that's not related to engineering. Um, my senior year of college, I took a class with RISD industrial designers and Brown engineers. Uh, and that changed my life. That was it. That was the moment where they had played, sounds very cliche, but they played the IDEO shopping cart video. I learned about the Stanford program in product design and my heart spit up and I'm like, this is what I want. Um, fast forward, you know, three years later, enrolled in the Stanford product design program and, you know, adopted the, it's all about the journey, how like a chemical engineer can turn themselves into a designer. Is there anything you still use from your days as a chemical engineer that really serves you well? I think I'm like, I don't know. I'm pretty, I, I can be analytical. Like I can like get in and maybe there's some, like the analysis of research, right? Which is both, how do you find the patterns and make it all fit, but also creative. I think I get some of that analytical, but no, I was not a very good engineer. I used to be really good at Excel because I had a job between uh, undergrad and grad school where I, I like, had all these shortcuts and could do macros and pivot tables. Um, so I feel like every once in a while I have like, little trigger fingers. I'm like, I should be able to do this, but I don't think technology has kept up with me, or I haven't kept up with technology, actually. I like, I like that technology has not kept up with you. I like that framing. <laughs> that's better. So then you, from there, thank you, that's a perfect transition, you, you went more into design research. So can you explain that that path, how you got started? Was there a moment that you said, oh, I research is where I'm at, where it's at for me? Got to Stanford and took a lot of classes and was frankly like a very overwhelmed by all the people who had like made handmade boats before and done all the machining and the welding and all that stuff and took a class with someone who became my mentor, Michael Berry, um, and had the opportunity to intern with him the summer between my two years. And that's kind of where I honed in. I think after grad school, um, and the thing I really, that drew me to like the, the design research, the strategy, the innovation side is it was the most open-ended. It was the furthest upfront in the design process. And it meant that I had the biggest chance of actually telling people like, where is the opportunity? Not on the mechanical widget of how we can make it, but like, where's the market and the business and the innovation opportunities. And I loved that. And I found myself 
good at it, which was also reaffirming. Well, maybe I wasn't the best machinist out there. Welding, maybe I can hang, but not so much on the, on the machine. I love it. Um, thank you. And then the next, further into that, is you've really focused most of your career in tech. You could be in many different domains. So why, why the connection and the focus in tech? Tech is, I would say, is newer. And I was determined to get into tech. Honestly, I think I felt that at the time I risked a chance of irrelevance if I didn't. Um, that's one of the reasons why, I, I mean, I wanted to leave IDEO for a number of reasons, but I was really hungry to get into tech. And that was not actually an easy transition um, because when you're in consulting for a long time and at IDEO, while I did service and design, service design, experience design, innovation, research, like how that maps into technology was not obvious for me. So I did a massive job search with yeah, lots and lots of opportunity. And, you know, there were opportunities to go run innovation labs, but I was most intrigued by heading to WeWork where I could lead up design research and strategy. So that end-to-end -end process that I ran at IDEO where I didn't see myself pigeonholed as a researcher, I'm a designer, right? That, get, that got translated for me in tech and as design research and strategy. And, and, the, and it's, it doesn't mean I don't get to do all the things. I didn't get to do all the things I did. It's just like I had to map that. That was not obvious. Bigger tech companies I would talk to, they want to really put you in that bucket. Like, do you do research or do you do design? I'm like, wait, but I do both. So having to actually parse that and find an organization that wanted all of me, you know, they didn't want me to just stop at, I write research decks. Cause I, I believe like really good research and experience design, you need to get from insights, actual insights into maps, into opportunity areas, into vision. Like that is the flavor of research and design. So um, yeah, that was kind of how I landed at, at WeWork. I, I had other job offers and uh, WeWork was the most exciting and I got more than I could bargain for, I think, on the excitement front with what I lived through at WeWork. You lived through a very interesting time. Um, I wonder if there is a, a lesson you took away from that, either from that period of time during the pandemic or just much more broadly as you progress through your career that you'd be willing to share. Yeah, I mean, gosh, so so many, so many learnings that WeWork Um <laughs> I learned what is like the result of hyper growth. This is like not a personal lesson, but kind of more of an environmental lesson. Like um, hyper growth startups come at a cost. Um, so you're kind of challenged to grow year over year revenue at all cost. And, you know, 10 years in, which is pretty much when I joined, it's in line with what I'm doing at Carta as well. You have um, a lot of technical debt, a lot of like user experience debt, People have been told to go build and launch at all costs and haven't had the chance to, um, you know, like step back. They almost don't want to pay the collaboration tax. So you build. Wait, yeah, wait speak more. You said they have a user experience debt. Yeah, that's what it's um, called. Like there's UX debt and there's tech debt. UX debt is like tech debt is like when your back end systems are like not built to scale or often when you're, you've built this is me way more technical. Don't, please don't, like, I don't know at all, but like you've built a monolith, right? Like you pile things on and usually you have to decompose things into yes. services so that your back ends can like really thoughtfully call it, call things up to your front ends. And it, it doesn't, you're not like going through this mess and chain. Well, UX side is kind of similar where, um, for example, like you maybe have launched a new feature or a new product, but you've 
stuck it in a weird place in your menu because you didn't have the infrastructure to build it anywhere else. And so like the user experience doesn't make any sense. It's not intuitive, but you've, you've done it. Or I've seen a lot of like, we just shipped our org chart. Like, well, I'm, I'm the, you know, uh, I don't know. I'm the, um, would it be example? Like I'm in charge of floor plans, this group, and I'm in charge of memberships. And so memberships and floor plans become your top level navigation, but that's not a user's mindset. It's just our org chart. Um, so there's a lot of unwinding of, of that that needs to happen once you kind of pump, pump the brakes, brakes on growth at all costs and can actually step back and say, how do we go back to the first principles of what a user thinks and what are their mental models and, and like, what are their core workflows or jobs to be done? And then how does that start to reflect in the design? Um, so yes, you have both of those. So that's like the reality of a scaling startup. I think on a personal level for WeWork, um, I think I was always a fairly authentic leader, but it, it brought me to a whole nother level of authenticity when you are leading people. So I had like a year of hyper growth and then, and then the IPO failed and we did mass layoffs and was very uncertain. And then a year of yuckiness and then a whole nother year and a half of, um, rebuilding. And so like the authenticity that I had to bring to be like, I'm sorry, this place is a mess. I don't really know what you should work on. Um, I don't know what I should work on. Um, or I would, you know, I wouldn't, you can't retain people, right? I would say like, this place is not easy to work. Like you have to want it. So just that level of like authenticity and being like I, I said, no one can question my tolerance for ambiguity and grit and being able to persevere and find the joy and the optimism. So a little bit of like, whoa, scaling startup. And then also like, what does it mean to lead through kind of trauma and ambiguity? I would say it's crazy. <laughs> wow. Thank you for sharing so, so authentically your experiences as a leader. I, I'm wondering if you can dig a little deeper into that and say what the differences for you were between leading a design research team and being a design researcher. Being a design researcher means like you're being handed meaty, unknown challenges and you have to go figure them out um, by doing all the research yourself, right? Who are the people, who are the users you need to speak to? Um, uh, how do I think about the ecosystem? How do I distill insights and how do I map journeys and identify major pain points and help to strategize and prioritize? As the person who's leading that research team, um, I had different things I needed to think about. I needed to think about the team and the quality of the talent on that team. So that's a big part of like, do I have the right skills on the team? How do you think about deploying that team and then guiding? Um, so what's excellent? What does good look like? How do we start to define what, what I always call them those deliverables that people savor, you know, that one journey map that just like maps the whole world that everyone calls up over and over and over again, or like your diagram of a strategy of how we're going to approach stuff. So helping to guide the des design researchers doing the work and think about like how to, what's the beginning, middle, end of a project and how do I help make their deliverables the best that will serve the organization and their needs. I, I love on your LinkedIn bio, you have um, a short sentence that says, no great design is done alone. <laughs> when, when were you inspired to put that? When did you have that insight? And when were you inspired to put that on? I had a moment. So in grad school, um, I cried, I just be honest, I cried a lot. I was very hard on myself 
Um, I was very intimidated. I had never done a lot of design work before and I was surrounded by like the best of the best. And I didn't really see myself as like this amazing designer who could go off and design incredible things. And your, your worldview is very small there. You don't see how you, um, in a, in a program with 30 students between first year and second, you don't see how you map out in the world or all the things that you're learning. It was David Kelly actually, who talked about how he wasn't the lone designer type. And even to the extent that when he did his own thesis project years and years ago, he would recruit undergrads to come help him with his work. And that was a big unlock for me and also helping identify myself as a designer and realizing I didn't have to be, you know, the Steve Jobs, although that's probably not the right metaphor, but like the lone genius designer. And it was a team. Um, and I've only ever worked in a team setting when I worked at Point Forward and it was apprenticeship model. So it was me and a more senior researcher and strategist at IDEO. It's all team. Um, I only know how to work that way, probably to a fault. I love this story, first of all, about a very specific story of a moment uh, where David Kelly said he recruited undergrads. Um, and just also your focus on the language you're using. It reminds me of your immaculate ability to tell stories and how carefully you think about what story to convey um, and what words to use it. And I'm wondering if there's a story that you have developed in your lifetime about a project you did or a story you're particularly proud of that really stuck with people that really um, people still remember it to this day. The bar test? Well, tell me that story. You can start there. Yes. Um, so this was it's a good segue. Um, the, the bar test super simply... And this is, I have to credit my um, former colleague at, at IDEO, Neil Stevenson, and I kind of came up with this as well. And it was that observation, which is we had our designers at IDEO doing the same thing. 14 weeks on a project, what happens in the boardroom at that exact meeting is make it or break it. And designers were spending two hours on that and not always doing an awesome job. Um, so we spun up a, a storytelling series to help raise the bar on, on people's stories by, by telling personal stories and showing the elements that make a personal story also apply to work story. First step of IDEO, we call it IDEO stories, was to do the bar test, which is how well does your story hold up at a bar? So it could be a work story where you go, you don't, you don't get into a deck, you don't write anything down, you just go and you pitch it. What is the story of this project? What is the through line? And by the time you drink a drink, um, you should have it out. And you should be able to get really good signals of like, when did people lean in? When did they lose you? Is, this, is there a through line there? Those five or 10 minutes of actually just talking through the story and getting feedback exponentially accelerate you um, in actually developing a really good presentation with good observations, with a through line, with like a good punchline, with things that they should um, hit in order for people to like actually pick up what you're putting down. I have to ask, can anything be made into a story? As long as you can accompany it with an anecdote. So people remember anecdotes, people don't remember your synthesis of it, right? Like, so you can have the most beautiful synthesis of like, your awesome through line, like the point of this is, you know, whatever, you've just done a water project and like everything about water boils down to purity. I'm making that. Um, if you don't have good stories about impure water or when people found purity, like it doesn't matter. No one will care. So like, I think you can make anything into a story as long as you can put the substance and the feelings around it. But I 
It's funny. I'm about to say, but I'm no expert. <laughs> I know. Stop it. I know. You are an expert in storytelling, design research, and many other things. <laughs> I so, really like words too. I, I think people just, they discount how powerful choosing the right words really are when you're making a point and like the art of persuasion and poignancy. Oh, they, it really helps. Um, it's, it's fun. It's, it's, uh, it's, do you see it as a design, a design job? For sure. Absolutely. Like, especially I'm super picky about anyone who's reported into me and I've guided their work. I'm very picky about final presentations and the words that go in there. I'm like, eh, is this throwaway? Are people going to remember this? Like, this isn't pithy enough. Um, yeah, I, I, and, and I, I've not, I don't, I'm not a trained writer at idea. We had that as a discipline. Like there are UX writers um, and copywriters, some who are, who come more from like the expertise of user experience and how that pairs with um, like a product interface and some who are just like amazing at voice and tone. Um, and, and for them, like it's still work for me to write for them. It's not, it's like so fluent. Yeah. It's an amazing discipline. I love working with writers. Okay. Two final questions and we'll wrap up here. What's something you still want to learn, um, learn about do in your professional life? I'm still learning tech. This sounds silly too. Like I, I don't know, like I'm still learning about the monolith and the services and the repo. And like, I think I, it's an interesting thing coming from another world. And I had to check myself at WeWork. I, I definitely had like a defining moment at WeWork where I had to realize that I was the expert. And that took me a minute to own um, at WeWork. You show up to these meetings and you're like, who put this deck together? It just didn't make sense. And then you realize... Whether, you know, was there a meeting? Did I miss? No, there was no meeting. And somebody just tried to put a deck together, but they didn't know. And, hey, you're an expert. You go and lead. Um, and so I'm also trying to blend that, I think, as I learn, like, more about the intricacies of tech. Like, how does my expertise lend itself? When should I be louder and more assertive? When should I be learning and using that? What's the things that are important that I need to pay attention to? I love that. Thank you. Final question. Any advice you have to share with young people entering the field that might aspire to be in a leadership position like yourself someday? I think one of the most important skills a designer needs to have, it fits in that category of strong opinions loosely held. Your ability to have a point of view and influence is huge. I was just on this morning with my CPO just like I CPO, need designers, which stands for chief product officer. So, um, my new boss, uh, cause I already have a new boss. Um, she was like, I really think designers need to lead more. They are experts at the users. They are experts of the problem space. They are experts about what's an awesome experience and they often aren't loud enough. And I like my designers loud. I was, I was like, I will always have your back. But like lead with a perspective, lead with a point of view. And I literally, most of the people that I'm going to give feedback to, that is a point for them. Your colleagues want you louder. Your colleagues want you more affirmed. Your co colleagues want you um, pushing back more. And so that's my advice. And I would say, especially for the women who maybe are going to be in the room with a lot of men, um, get loud, find your voice. Strong opinions listed. And there's ways to do it through humor. There's ways to do it with saying, hey, this is my opinion. 
come and you know invite the critique invite the criticism but like bring the opinion and they should not be shy about offering that it's all a prototype you can always go back i definitely that is one of my personal flaws everything's the prototype i'm just making it up we're going to try it some things are going to work some things aren't this opinion it's a, it's a version of a prototype just put it out there people are hungry for good leadership beautiful i my love it pleasure. thank you so much Nicole. Thank you.